0: Today on the show, I speak with Scarlett Lewis. Scarlett is the mother of Jesse Lewis, who was killed in his first grade classroom during the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School on December 14th, 2012, along with 19 classmates and six teachers and administrators in one of the worst school shootings in U.S. history. In the midst of unfathomable grief, Scarlett managed to find forgiveness for Adam Lanza, the Sandy Hook shooter. To honor Jesse and to prevent future school violence, Scarlett founded the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement to promote social and emotional education in schools, as well as a consistent message of compassion in our communities. Scarlett is the recipient of the International Forgiveness Award the Live Your Legacy Award, and the Common Ground Award for her advocacy work for peace and forgiveness. She is also the author of Nurturing Healing Love, a story about her journey of turning personal tragedy into something that can positively impact the world. In our conversation, we discuss grief, the nature of forgiveness, and how we can find meaning in our suffering. And we talk about the importance of social emotional learning, particularly in the era of lockdown, when so many kids are isolated. Now, Scarlett is nothing short of inspirational, and I hope you find this conversation helpful and uplifting. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Scarlett Lewis. So there's myriad topics that I'm really just excited to excavate with you. Um, I want to talk about the nature of grief and how we can heal. Um, I really look forward to discussing how one can find meaning in their suffering um, and explore that relationship between healing and forgiveness, what the process of forgiveness looks like, um, and then also really just talk about mental illness and depression specifically as it relates to our children in this moment. Uh, and hopefully we can spend a good amount of time talking about social, emotional learning and what is it and how the, uh, and what is the mission and impact of the choose love movement. Um, and I, I know that you have so much to teach us on all these fronts, um, But given that that your biography is so central to many of these topics, um, I'd hope just to scaffold our conversation in a bit of your story. So can you describe your life uh, before, I suppose, what what one might call the inflection point of December 14th, 2012?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I was a single mom. That was raising two young sons by myself. Um, We lived on a little farm in the middle of Sandy Hook, Connecticut. It's how I chose to raise my boys. I wanted them to be outside around animals, getting dirt under their fingernails, getting sunshine. It's how I like to live my life. Very active. And... uh, Then uh, December fourteenth, you know, it was another normal day in 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 the life of Scarlett Lewis and her kids, Um, and I, um, you know, unfortunately, got the um, the call, come to the school. Um, You need to be uh, there was a shooting. There's a place uh, we were meeting at the firehouse at the end of the cul-de-sac by the school. Come be reunited with your kid, pick them up and bring them home. And of course, I was never reunited with Jesse as neither were 19 other first grade parents or um, the families of six educators, one of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history. And that is... Uh, That was my inflection point. You're absolutely right. I realized that what had happened was preventable. And I was directed by a few things that my son had done. Uh, First of all, we found out that he had saved nine of his first grade classmates lives. When the shooter had turned into his room after murdering his principal and guidance counselor right outside his first grade classroom door, he came into my son's room and his gun ran out of bullets. So during the short delay that it took for him to change his clip, Jesse directed nine of his classmates to run, and he is credited with saving their lives Um, And then, uh, you know, we feel like he didn't run. He wanted to uh, protect his teacher because he was killed um, right in front of his teacher. Um, Mm. And then I came home to the farmhouse where I raised my kids. It took me a few days to actually come back to the farmhouse. Um, I was really afraid to do that. I didn't want to see Jesse's boots by the door or his toothbrush by the sink. But I had to um, get clothes for him and to be um, for his casket. And uh, I remember wanting them to be warm because it was really cold in December. Uh, So I came back to the house with a bunch of my family and I found a message that he had written on our kitchen chalkboard shortly before he died. I didn't find it until after his murder. And he had written three words, nurturing, healing, love. Um, They were phonetically spelled because he was in first grade and just learning how to write. But I knew that if the shooter who was a former student of the Sandy Hook School District. In fact, he was uh, just graduated. If he had been able to give and receive nurturing, healing, love, the tragedy would never have happened. And I knew that I'd be spending the rest of my life spreading that message. And so here we are (laughs) uh, nine Mm. years later and and less than a month, and I'm still doing that.
0: Mm. Thank you for, yeah, mustering the the stamina to tell that story. Um, I can't imagine that it gets too much easier to tell, um, though you tell it with great grace and and eloquence. Um, You know, I am curious about what the process of grieving was for you. Um, And, you know, we're never really taught how to grieve. This is not something that exists within the general K through 12 curriculum or even in higher education. Um, yet it is inherent to everybody's life at some point. Now, obviously, your grief and your circumstances were so severe and and particularly gruesome, you know, losing a child. Like my grandfather lost um, his daughter, Terry, in an accident. And I I saw the disorder that that caused for him throughout his life. Um, but everyone does confront grief at some point in their life. And I wonder, you know, could you give us a window into what that process was like for you? Because I think it can be really instructive for other people that are going through moments of suffering and you seem to be able to to manage it again with such grace
1: you know i've learned a lot about grief because you're right nobody talks about it i've learned that there's a tremendous amount of fear around grief um and grief is a natural part of life we don't just grieve the significant losses in our lives, but we grieve. Sometimes every day we grieve the loss of. Uh, we're all grieving right now through COVID. The loss of the life that we wanted, or we should have, or freedoms. I mean, there's there's so many ways that we grieve, and it is a natural process. We shouldn't be afraid of it. It's it's actually a, a process of of self awareness and 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 growth mm. um but i was very careful with myself i was very gentle <laughs> with very few expectations. And I really protected myself during my grieving process. Uh, There was a lot involved. Um, There was, uh, you know, FBI that was involved from day one in an investigation into how something like that could happen. And in fact, that investigation went on for five years before that report was released. And the families had regular meetings with the FBI. And as you can imagine, gruesome details uh, came out in those meetings and things that would make you very, very angry about things that were overlooked and not done and injustices for really all involved. And um, I I didn't go to a lot of those meetings. I had um, my mom go for me and just tell me what I needed to know. Because I didn't want to overburden myself. Um, I wanted my grieving process to just be natural. Um, and I think that I had a lot of patience with myself. And uh, and I had absolutely no expectation. Because I mean, what is the expectation when your child is brutally murdered in their first grade classroom? Um, no one knows. Um, And actually one of the things that was a little off putting to me was being uh, in front of uh, people who were there to help me and seeing the fear in their eyes because they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so I realized, wow, this is really going to be a journey that I'm going to have to take myself. And, uh, and, and the good thing about um, the way that I did it, was that I, I was open to opportunities to heal. And it's kind of interesting what I saw. Um, and the difference between me and maybe some others that are on this same journey along with me. Uh, and, and one of the benefits of living in Sandy Hook was that people from all over the world came to offer their modalities of healing. And I was open to all of them. I thought that um, they wouldn't hurt me, worst case scenario, and best case scenario, they could help me. And I wanted to be helped. I did not wanna stay in the dark place that I was. Um, And I also had practiced being present um, before the tragedy. So with my boys, I was, uh, present in the moment with them. We Thank goodness it was before the time of screens. But even so, I we didn't have a TV because I didn't want to compete with a TV. I just wanted to be with them all the time. And I was a single mom, remember, and I worked full time and I had a long commute and I worked long hours. So the time that I was with them, I wanted to be present with them. So I had already had this practice With the boys. And so uh, I I extended that practice into my grieving process. Um, I was present with myself and my pain. I didn't shy away from it. And um, I think because of that, it helped me move through it um, more quickly. I, I wasn't afraid of it. Uh, I wasn't resisting it or avoiding it. Um, In fact, I remember uh, one one moment where I was sitting on my mom's couch and I, I was going over the people that I had in my life known that had lost kids. And I was thinking about my aunt, my mom's sister who had lost a young daughter from leukemia. And she had said, uh, that she didn't see color for years. I think it took her four or five years to get color back into her life, and I was experiencing the exact opposite of that. Um, when I looked around, everything was more colorful. I was seeing colors I'd never seen before, and I was trying to figure out how that could possibly be, and. I realized that I think I was addressing this v- in, very presently, <laughs> just very in the moment. And I was making a conscious decision to not do it with fear, to do it with love and to see everything in my life through a lens of love. And that included everything, by the way, that included um, the shooter as well.
0: I want to pull on a couple of different threads. First, one thing that you said that you were open to the opportunity to heal, which I think is a very meaningful statement. Um, I've read a little bit of an author named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I know that you're very well read, so you may be familiar with her. She wrote brilliantly on the topic of grief. And she codified grief in 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 five stages, but they were all characterized until the very end by a shutting down, uh, a, a depression, an isolation, a closing off. Um, you know, her stages were famously see if I can recall them on the spot: denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then eventually acceptance. <laughs> and um, it appears to me or that you in some ways bypassed s- some of those stages by being open and, uh, and that may have been a product of what you said, you know, your ability for mindfulness or non-judgmental presence, um, sacred presence, however you want to talk about it or categorize it, but your ability to be aware in the present moment and to experience uh, emotions and thoughts um, as phenomena arising, but not necessarily completely become those things and identify with those things. And, um, you know, I want to ask you if you had a mindfulness or meditation practice that you found useful? Because, you know, there's this trope in in spiritual circles or wellness circles, that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, anyone that's kind of spent any time in spiritual circles have probably come across that aphorism. And it, it sort of suggests that Grief is a phantom of our own projection, and really what we need to do is just kind of let go and not identify with it. But it almost um, cheapens the process because liberating yourself from that kind of grief is often hard-wrought, difficult work. You know, it doesn't just come, you know, with the green juice or something. Um, so... I wonder, you know, what were the practices that made you, that allowed you to be so open um, and that allowed you to experience the world with love instead of anger?
1: Uh, it's interesting that when opportunities came to try new therapies, I would do that. And, and it includes tapping, by the way, um, because Nick Ortner, mm-hmm. who's the president of the Tapping Solution, lived in Newtown. I didn't know that, but he literally came to my house and sat on my couch and and tapped with myself and my father and my son, uh, my, my older son. And uh, it was an incredible experience. I felt... I felt relief. I, I had been angry, but not about the tragedy, which was kind of interesting. I was angry about something else that happened. And so I'm tapping with Nick through this. And he kind of broke through that and realized we both realized together that I was using that incident that I was angry at to protect my grief for me not to look at my own pain. And so we blew that wide open and it was incredible. Mm. It was an incredible experience. And so I started tapping with him, which was an incredible privilege. And I would start telling the other parents uh, how incredible tapping was. And uh, Nick had offered to do this series of, of tapping lessons for the parents and no one wanted to do it. And the reason was because uh, you know, I, I had said, you know, look, I, I think that this is amazing. It's really helped me. It works. And their reaction was, well, what if it doesn't work for me? Um, and so kind of like a more, fearful response. So I think there's a lot to being open to healing and the expectation of seeing it as an opportunity and uh, an opportunity for growth. Um, One of the things that I've learned about since, since the tragedy is post-traumatic growth. You know, we, we think, um, through a lens of negative bias, so we focus on the negative. This is our brain's way of keeping us safe, and so everyone's heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I had too. In fact, while I was waiting at the firehouse to, while they supposedly were looking for Jesse to 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 be reunited. Uh, in my mind, of course, I was catastrophizing, going over worst case scenarios, which is what we do as human beings. It's our brain's way of trying to uh, get us prepared. And uh, and I thought, oh, my God, if, if this doesn't go well, if Jesse doesn't come back, I'm going to be experiencing PTSD because that's all I knew. And then I thought, wow, what is that going to, how's that going to manifest in me? I'm probably going to be institutionalized. (laughs) And then I started thinking, well, who's going to take care of my older son? And, uh, and so, um, I think that, uh, This this concept of post-traumatic growth, which is now just the foundation of almost everything that I do, is the understanding that when we go through difficulty, it is an opportunity for growth. It it is an expansion of of who we are and and what we know. And rather than closing ourselves off to keep ourselves safe, um, really there's safety in opening ourselves and, um, allowing the experience to unfold in front of us. And, you know, one of the other reasons that I did that, that, that I was probably came upon that maybe quicker than other people was because I did have an older son and he, you know, I, I, I knew that I was, teaching him in the moment how to handle difficulty and roadblocks and challenges and even pain and suffering in his life. Everything that I did, it wasn't just words out of my mouth, but it was every reaction, every action that I had. He was watching facial expressions, gesticulation, energy, everything that I did was teaching him in the moment how to move forward from this. and. I knew that it was up to me to show him how to get through this in the best way. I did not want him to suffer from this, as, as you said. I, I wanted him to expand and to to heal and to grow out of this. But in order for for him to do that, I was gonna have to do it.
0: Yeah. It makes me, this idea of post-traumatic growth makes me think of Viktor Frankl in some ways who might be considered the, maybe the grandfather of this idea of finding meaning in suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, He famously wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that we find purpose in three distinct places, in our relationships, in our work, in our creativity, and in our suffering. And he quotes, uh, I believe, Dostoevsky in that book with this, um, this small quote, are we worthy of our suffering, which is mm. so poignant. And um, mm-hmm. you may be familiar with this woman, Candace Leitner, um, who founded MAD, its Mothers mm-hmm. Against Drunk Driving. Um,
1: Absolutely.
0: Her daughter was killed uh, by uh, an inebriated driver. And in response, you know, she had a period of, of grief, but she found meaning in that grief and, and founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And so I wonder at what point were you able to find meaning uh, in the wake of, of Jesse's death?
1: Yeah, you know, you, you do not want your child to die in vain. And um, I knew that his message of nurturing, healing, love was going to be the meaning that he left behind. It was almost like a spiritual awareness that he had that he wasn't going to be on Earth for very much longer. But it was also a, a directive for me. I knew that I would be spending the rest of my life spreading that message. And he I feel like he gave me the platform, you know, this everybody, uh, everybody that I meet anywhere that I go has heard about the tragedy at Sandy Hook. So I feel like that is the platform. And then his message um, provides the meaning for it. Um, and, and the amazing thing is that his message of nurturing, healing love has now gone around the world. It's being taught in over 10,000 schools in every state and 150 countries. So through his murder Now kids are learning a powerful formula to enable them to thoughtfully respond to anything that happens in their life with love. You know, you you mentioned Viktor Frankl and one of my favorite quotes of Viktor Frankl's is his, when he says, in between stimulus." and response, there's a space and in that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response and in our response lies our growth and freedom. And that is one of the foundational aspects of what I'm doing now in the Choose Love movement is providing a way for kids and adults to be able to thoughtfully respond to whatever happens in their life, by taking their personal power back and choosing love, because the bottom line is this: we can't always choose what happens to us. And I am the poster child for that. <laughs> you know, I would yeah. never have chosen yes. to have my son murdered. Um, and and by the way, none of us would have chosen a global pandemic, but we can all take right. our personal power back in how we choose to respond.
0: Right. I want to hover just on grief, just for one more moment. Um, because I think many people could feel like their own grief is so trivial relative to yours. Um, but you actually met some young people from Rwanda that had endured just unspeakable tragedy. And, and I wonder if you could speak to that a bit and, and how it impacted JT.
1: Wow, that was a pivotal moment for both JT and I. Um, following the shooting, um, JT didn't want to go back to school, understandably. He was in seventh grade and uh, I didn't want him to go back either. <laughs> I was I was afraid for him to go back to school. Um Mm-hmm. The school did not have any plan, and uh, we had, during this, during this kind of month period, um, we had a group of orphan genocide survivors reach out to us um, on Skype, uh, reach out to JT specifically. Uh, so he's in his bedroom, he's got his screen open, and these two beautiful um, now young adults came on the screen with an interpreter um, and they explained to JT that they had heard about what happened to his little brother and they were so sorry and they wanted to share their story with him um, and, and talk about how they moved through, how they grew through, how they learned from their own personal tragedy, how they were strengthened by it. And they talked about how when they were four years old, they had been uh, in the Rwandan genocide, where over 1 million Tutsis were murdered by their neighboring Hutu, Hutus within 90 days. And they had literally watched their families, their parents, their brothers and sisters, their, their neighbors, their aunts and uncles be murdered in cold blood attempted murder on them they had scars on their face uh and then the journey afterwards of living in uh red cross camps and um having to uh go through um learning about forgiveness and reconciliation and and um trying to implement that in their own life, going back into the same community as the people that had murdered their families Mm -hmm. and having to live alongside them. I mean, they were talking to JT, I was standing behind them thinking, these people have suffered far worse than we have. And I think for for both JT and I, it was such an incredible example of what we could do in our own lives. Uh, and I know that afterwards JT um, said that he wanted to go back to school. And I said, really? you know, mm-hmm. like why?" <laughs> and he said, "Well, because you know if if those kids could do what they do, um, I know that I can, and I actually want to turn around and I want to help them. Um, they had talked about how, um, you know, they, they had no resources to go to school. Um, and they shared a little bit about their lives. And so JT literally went back to school and he started raising money for those same kids so that they could go to school and they could continue to spread their message the way that they were doing. and. That act of compassion in action was such a huge part of JT's healing when he literally hmm. went back to school so that he could start fundraising. He created these uh, these bracelets and he created an organization called NewtownHelpsRwanda.org. Um, It's I think it's still up. And he started raising money. And uh, this is this is all uh, facilitated through the tapping solution, which was amazing because the tapping solution was over there in Rwanda helping these kids. And so they kind of helped in the background facilitate this exchange. And uh, and it was such an incredible lesson for me and not one that we're usually taught and kind of one that is counterintuitive to the way that some of us live our lives, um, which is, you know, I mean, what the more I give, the more I get. If I do something for someone yeah. else that actually heals me. It's, it's a little counterintuitive, but it was incredible the transformation that JT went through. And, uh, and I, and I learned a lot from it.
0: Wow. That is simply incredible. I mean, you, know you must what? just be so he, proud of him. <laughs> I
1: was so proud of him. And, and he, so he, uh, actually raised enough money, continued raising money and sent two orphan genocide survivors to university. One got their MBA, one went to four years of college and then he, kept going because it, it made him feel good. It strengthened him. It continued to heal him because healing, of course, is a lifelong journey. So then we met a woman, um, Jane Icaro, who runs an organization in Uganda that helps children who were former children's soldiers. And uh, he raised money for them and he built a self-sustaining fish pond for them. And then he built self-sustaining uh, poultry operations for the kids so that they could um, make money and eat. And, and uh, it's... It, he keeps, he keeps going. And for me, it's a, it's an incredibly huge lesson and, and one that I modeled my own recovery off of, um, which is the more you do for others, the more that you're doing for yourself, the more you help others heal, the more you heal. And I think that is such an incredible lesson that I've learned that I did not know before.
0: That is so poignant. Um, This idea that compassion, bringing loving kindness to the presence of suffering in a way that specifically intends to alleviate that suffering, that that also alleviates your own suffering. I mean, that is just a huge epiphany to have and the same with forgiveness i mean and i'd really i'd love to talk with you about forgiveness because it is often conceived as a gift that you give someone else but in many ways it can be a gift that you that you give yourself and um and that's what i'd love to probe with you uh, a little bit um I mean, forgiveness is often referred to as the hardest virtue to actually enact. Um, So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of forgiveness and how you came to, to forgive Mr. Lanza.
1: Oh, I learned so much about forgiveness and I realized I knew nothing about it before. I mean, I, I it's in my belief that you forgive so that you're forgiven. And that's all that I knew. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and wow, did I really go deep and, and mainly because of this, because I did not want to spend the rest of my life angry. And I saw so many people that were shackled in anger. And I didn't want that for myself. I didn't want to give my personal power away to a young man that was clearly so troubled. And I didn't want that for JT either. So I started exploring this concept of forgiveness. And... You know, the other thing is that um, even from the very beginning, uh, and it may sound incredible, but I felt a lot of compassion for the shooter himself. Hmm. I watched how other people reacted and I saw all of the blame being focused on the shooter and his mother. And the interesting thing about that was that she was a single mom taking care of a special needs son. And the interesting thing about that is that uh, when JT was young, he and I went through some really difficult times, really difficult times. And when I went to the school when he was young, I asked them for help and uh and jt needed help and we were refused and it was interesting because adam lanza and his mom went through the same exact process so i i had compassion for her i knew that she had tried the best that she could with the skills and tools that she had. By the way, I didn't have very good skills and tools either uh, before I learned them after Jesse's murder and going through the process of creating the Choose Love movement. Um, but I, I knew that it couldn't be all their fault. I knew that that was way too easy. I knew that if it was, then it would never have happened before. But wait a minute, we've had lots of school shootings before and it would never have happened again. But wait a minute, we've had over 350 school shootings since Sandy Hook Elementary School. We had over 50 last year alone. Mm -hmm. That's not Adam Lanza's Mm -hmm. fault and his mother's. And so it really made me think, whose fault is it? If we have to blame somebody, whose fault is it? And I saw no one taking responsibility. Absolutely zero trying to find responsibility or even anybody being held accountable. And so I thought, well, Mm -hmm. this happened in my community, in my school district. So I guess I will have to take my part of the responsibility for living here and for having it happen here. And I was hoping by doing that, that other people would start to take responsibility for what's going on in our world in your universe, whatever that is, wherever that yeah. is, take responsibility yeah. for that, so that you can be part of the solution.
0: Yeah, and so, so you know
1: that's that's part part you know it was the 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 path to forgiveness um, didn't start with anger for me. Uh, it's it did start with compassion. Um, but it was interesting the conversations that I I had, um, the arguments. Um, my father and I didn't speak for three months because we disagreed on the definition of forgiveness, which sounds ridiculous when I say it, but it's true. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like forgiveness did not preclude holding people responsible for their actions. Mm. And he said, no, forgiveness is letting it go. You just let it go. You can't hold people accountable. And I said, well, I don't understand because if I was raped, (laughs) it would be my responsibility to hold my rapist accountable so that he didn't do it to other people. So anyway, that was the disconnect there. But I learned so much about forgiveness. I, I learned that it was a gift that I Gave myself. I, I learned that it, it really had nothing to do with the other person. I learned that it was the only way that I could take my personal power back and cut that cord that attached me to pain. And so I talk about uh, a lot. Uh, in fact, one of the main focuses of the Choose Love movement is on forgiveness, because lo and behold, there are decades of research that talk about the benefits of forgiveness to the forgiver and ultimately how it enhances our relationships and our relationships and the depth of our connections are what lead us to happiness. So you see how this is really important in your Mm -hmm. own personal journey to be able to understand this and then practice it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's so many lessons in there, Scarlet. Um, I mean, I, I look at my own subjective experience of the world. And, you know, when I'm angry, I'm the one that's angry. I'm the one that's suffering from holding an ember in my hand, waiting for the right moment to vengefully throw it at someone. But all that time, I'm the one getting burned. And so, you know, this I think is a, a, another great epiphany that one can have is that the overcoming of resentment and vengeance is such a relief for yourself. Um, and, and it allows you to step into this better part of yourself um, as difficult as it might be. And, and this is actually really one thing that I've been wanting to ask you. Um, so I, I interviewed, uh, a, this guy named Dr. Robert Enright a few years ago. He is one of the world's, you know, biggest aficionados at the university of Wisconsin on the, on the nature of forgiveness. And I I wonder if this held true with you. He said first, I mean, this was a generalization, so this isn't always true, but he said, first you forgive with your head and then your heart follows. Was that the process for you?
1: I love that. Um, I'm not sure that that was the process for me because I Mm. felt compassion um, Mm. for Adam and his mom from the beginning. And that comes from the heart. Um, But I will tell you the process that I went through in my head. (laughs) And that was that I was (laughs) not going to allow Uh, A troubled young man who was suicidal, then homicidal, and who had created such horrific havoc, I was not going to let someone like that have control over my thoughts that impact how I feel, that then impacts my behavior and how I show up in relationships. I was never going to allow him And he was dead, by the way, to have any amount of control over my life. But the only way that I could take that personal power back was through forgiveness. And so that is how my head dealt with that. So it is a head heart thing. I completely agree with Dr. Enright and I love his work.
0: Yeah, he's a lovely and brilliant guy. Um, very soft spoken and unassuming sweet guy. Um, uh, I wonder if forgiveness is a, an ongoing process, um, or if it's sort of like you cross a threshold of forgiveness and then you have forgiven and you no longer need to forgive and that process is done. Or do you wake up on certain days and have to forgive again?
1: You know, that's a really good question. And for the past nine years, I have said that it starts with a choice, and then it becomes a process. And I say that, you know, I wake up on Jesse's birthday, on the anniversary, 1214 that just passed on Mother's Day, on my birthday, on Christmas, <laughs> Valentine's Day, so many different uh, different days that you get up and you feel sadness. But I think, you know, just now, having this conversation with you, I think that if you forgive with your heart as well as with your head, if you forgive to the point where you can feel compassion, and there's a great quote by uh, someone who said that um, that if you knew everyone from their birth until now, if you knew everything that happened to them during their whole entire life, you would feel nothing but love and compassion for them. And that certainly, um, certainly was uh, the case for Adam Lanza. You know, learning about his life and people are, um, sometimes horrified (laughs) that I talk with compassion about him, but, um, you know, there are only a few stories that I need to tell and people understand where I'm coming from. Um, he was bullied and isolated and, uh, most, most likely sexually abused by a trusted adult. Um, he went to first grade in Sandy Hook Elementary School. It's how he knew where to go to to perpetrate the crime. And he had a backpack filled with birthday invitations for his sixth birthday. And uh, he passed Hmm. them out to all of his classmates. No one came. Um, You know, there are stories like that. Uh, He wrote a a story about a witch when he was in fifth grade that came to Sandy Hook Elementary School with a broomstick. The broomstick opened into a semi-automatic weapon and she murdered children. Um, He wrote this story and he made copies and it was his intention to bring it to the school to sell. It was taken, but no action was given. I mean, that was his way of trying to say, this is in my head, help me. You know, we we have this ideal that kids are going to sit there and go, I'm having thoughts of self harm and harming others. Um, can you please make sure that I get help? Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's just not the way that it works. And so, you know, he's crying out for help and he's not getting it. Um, so you can see Why he got angry. And, and I hope that this helps, you know, those listening to understand a little bit more why I felt compassion. And so I think that it's, it's less when you do feel, when you, when you really work on your forgiveness and it can start with your heart or your head. But I think when those two align, then the need to continuously go through that process is lessened.
0: Hmm. yeah i was unaware of some of the stories that you related about adam lanza I, I i knew that he was diagnosed with asperger's i believe um which really um kind of disables one's ability to socially interact and and communicate um you know I, I knew that he was depressive and a relatively never le her Pretty much a shut in. I don't think he ever really left his room. And I believe he was anorexic at the time of um, the massacre. I believe he was like six feet tall and 112 pounds. So I'm six feet tall and 169 pounds on a good day. Um, so um, one could only imagine how miserable and depressed and depraved this human being was. And of course, you know, he ended his own life at the, to kind of bookend. um, Usually, usually the kids
1: that are homicidal are suicidal before then. And of course the fact that he had Hmm. Asperger's has no bearing on anything that happened on that day. Um, But I did meet with the former president of autism speaks and I he wanted to hear about what I was doing. And so I explained to him the programming and the formula for choosing love, which we will get into. And he said, wow, he said, you know, um, he had a son with autism. And he said, so I'm wondering while you're teaching your lessons in the classroom, if, if, if he would have been able to understand them and to take them in and, and get as much out of them as the other kids. And I said, you know, that's a great question. And I don't know the exact answer to that. However, I do know that all the other kids (laughs) would have been able to take in the Mm -hmm. lessons on compassion and forgiveness and gratitude and courage and, they would have been different. They would have treated Adam differently. So I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it, it's definitely something that was 100% preventable. And as are the vast majority of school shootings. I mean, any school shooting I've ever heard about or looked at was preventable as well. And we're going to have to change the way that we look at these issues in order to prevent them. I mean, up until now, we've been reacting and we've been focusing on the attack end of the pathway to violence. We've been hardening schools and subjecting our kids to um Uh, active shooter drills and things like that. And I'm not making a judgment on that. Um, But what I am saying is clearly that's not enough because they continue on a regular basis. And what we are realizing, we uh, uh, others are realizing is that really the most important part of school safety is the other end of the, of the scale, which is mm-hmm. uh, the culture end of the scale, the school culture, because school cultures that are connected, that are compassionate and loving, um, they can reduce and prevent a grievance from even happening. And it's the grievance that usually um, extends into the attack. Or if a grievance does happen, because they do, when kids have these, what are called essential life skills, the ability to get along with each other, to have relationships, to have meaningful connections, to be able to manage their emotions to be able to face and grow through difficulty to make responsible decisions then they're able to uh reduce and and and, and proceed a grievance or even manage a grievance before it escalates into an attack so really really an important uh essential part of school safety
0: yeah i'm so glad you bring that up because our society seems keen to always water the leaves and not the roots and and not always address root causes and of course you can make metaphors with our 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 sick care industry where you know, people get diabetic and we just throw a drug at it or people have heart disease and we just prescribe a statin instead of actually addressing underlying causes of what is causing the inflammation in a physiological system. Well, maybe we need to address diet, you know, maybe we need to address sleep or stress. Well, this is similar in a way because what you're really doing is addressing the root causes before they become a problem. And I I do have deep Concerns right now. I was mentioning, be just before we got on, I read a an article, a, a very extensive article um, in the New York Times yesterday about the prevalence of um, depression and mental illness uh, among children, specifically connected to this moment. Um, you know, I have three daughters, and. They have been almost exclusively learning at home. Now, thank God they have each other, and we have high-speed Internet, so they're continuing to learn. But the huge amount of people don't have that luxury, and kids are becoming increasingly isolated. And when they're isolated, they don't have support structures. They don't develop social skills. They often fall prey to the kind of thinner edges of the Internet um, which can can radicalize kids and and pull them into kind of untoward uh, circumstances. So I wonder if you could address a little bit about the prevalence of childhood depression and how the Choose Love movement is is going about addressing this issue, and, and talk a little bit about your curriculum and how you offer it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is really kind of an unprecedented time in our history, and our kids are suffering tremendously. And I think that the majority of everything that you're talking about starts with anxiety. And uh, it's interesting because yeah. anxiety was a pandemic. If you go uh, with the definition of what a pandemic is, before the pandemic. Um, and uh, the average onset age for anxiety in our, in our society is uh, six years old. Um, this was these, these are pre-pandemic numbers. We know that over 70% of kids did not get professional help, so they suffered alone, and all of the stuff that we're seeing now can be uh, considered the outcomes of untreated anxiety. And so anxiety is what leads to depression and all of the other things that we're seeing here, un- unfortunately, and there's a, a lot to be anxious about. Really, frankly, um, and uh, and so what the Choose Love movement does is it um, teaches essential life skills to be able to manage that anxiety, manage your emotions. Um, and so we we actually teach a powerful formula. For being able to thoughtfully respond to any situation with love. And, uh, and so that formula starts with courage. For the older kids, we actually give Jesse's example of courage, where he stood up to the shooter and saved nine of his classmates lives. Um, kind of the ultimate example of courage, but then with the lesson that we all have that capacity for courage, that science tells us that courage is like a muscle that we can practice it to strengthen it. And certainly, regardless of whether you're a child or you're an adult, um, living in today's world and facing what we have to face takes a lot of courage. And courage is the most important character value because it's the one that underlies all all the rest. So we literally start right there um, by teaching self-awareness, by teaching kids to check in with themselves, so they know what is going on with themselves. Having the courage to look at that and to say, "Hey, I'm. I gosh, I'm. I am feeling anxious. I'm not feeling well," and to understand that that needs to be addressed, and to be able to have the courage to face it and not resist yeah. and avoid it. <laughs> and so, you know, mm-hmm. really, really important to start there. And then we move into gratitude, um, teaching about gratitude, uh, how we, uh, we, we, we go into a lot of thinking about what we're thinking about. So our thoughts and uh, we, we all have tens of thousands of thoughts every day, the majority of which are negative and repetitive because of that negative bias that I referred to. Um, this includes our kids too. And when we start thinking about what we think about and say we're in a fearful, anxious, resentful, frustrated space... We can shift the focus of our lens away from that if we want to, if we're ready, if it's appropriate by using gratitude. So gratitude literally can provide relief. We can only focus on one thought at a time. How would you know this unless you were told this? And so you can use a practice of gratitude to shift the focus of your lens away from those fearful thoughts um, to, to more grateful thoughts. And there's always something to be grateful for. Of course, it would take courage to be grateful to, to do that mm-hmm. practice when things mm-hmm. aren't going your way, but you already have this baseline of courage. And then we move into forgiveness and uh, and it can be forgiveness for yourself, that can't be overlooked. Forgiveness for um, a myriad of things, of of, of being fearful, of, of then, you know, being isolated and then not wanting to go out and see people. Um, so many things that we're dealing with now. Uh, forgiving others for um, misunderstandings and uh, so important. and And literally the way to take your personal power back. Um, by forgiving and uh, and all the things that you know we've talked about forgiveness quite a bit during this podcast but so important to learn the gifts that forgiveness gives yourself and we focus on the benefits for us it's kind of like you know i'm 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 in my room, I'm not feeling well. Uh, if you're if you're a, a child or an adult, why should I do this? Why should I focus my time on this when I could just go on and watch Netflix? <laughs> and uh, and so we do focus on the benefits. This is what this practice will do for you. I mean, forgiveness has a myriad, decades of research about the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of forgiving. They're amazing. And, and by the way, it increases and strengthens your immune system. (laughs) It's, it's uh, (laughs) it's a way to have healthy relationships and connections, and there's just uh, to feel good. Um, And so you learn the benefits of that. And then we go into the compassion and action, which we talked about with JT's example, that is having the courage to step outside of your fear, your own suffering, your own pain, uh, even your own busyness and distraction to help other people. And then Mm -hmm. the understanding that all of the nurturing, healing love that you give out, you get back. And so that is this formula for choosing love and Teaching kids that—I mean, I've literally—we have—we have, we have a, a school-based program. We have a program for parents that correlates to what we're teaching with the kids, so so everyone can be on the same page. And then we also have a community program. And literally, this past year, um, having been in schools and seeing. Really, uh, what is going on with our youth? I literally took a bus and wrapped it in the, the formula for choosing love. And I've taken this out onto the road and I'm literally bringing it to people, um, to schools, to government agencies, to police departments, to prisons, to give them an experiential experience so they can literally feel the power of practicing these things, that we we do uh, brave breaths and we do brave poses and talk about how that can help strengthen our courage. We write gratitude letters and we think about how it makes us feel and how it makes the other person feel. Um, We literally write on a piece of paper, uh, an experience that hurt us that someone else did or that we did to hurt someone else we write it down or even the little kids draw it and oh my gosh it is incredible to have elementary school kids really really young kids they know exactly what this practice is they're walking around with so much hurt so much pain and uh and it was i i such i had to keep reminding myself as as these kids were were releasing all of this pain onto the paper that i was giving them a valve to be able to release Mm. this um so so much hurt um for instance there was a a first grader that uh, this little girl who wrote i am so 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 sorry s-o-r-e for, F-O-R-E, everything I done. So, so sorry. And you just Hmm. think, oh my God, what could this six-year-old, you know, beautiful little girl have done that she could be carrying around so much shame and blame and guilt. And, uh, And so, you know, watching these kids with all of this pain, putting it onto paper and then saying, okay, what are you going to do with that hurt? What are you going to do with that pain and discomfort? And what they did was they would crumple it up and then they would throw it away in either a, a, a bin for a garbage bin for self or others. So if you're forgiving yourself or you're forgiving others. Um, one time I came over and there was this little boy he was ripping up this paper. He was literally sweating and all red. He was so angry. And And this was like maybe a first or second grader ripping it up. I don't know what he wrote, so angry. And I said, "Um, well, what are you going to do with that pain? And he walked over and he slam dunked it into the garbage can labeled other. And he's walking away. And I said, does that feel good? And he taught me something. He turned around and he looked at me and he said, better. It feels better. So at least mm-hmm. we have something that can enable us to feel better. And uh, and then the compassion and action table, um, we uh, have done things like um, uh, ha- having the kids create bags for the homeless, pack bags literally for the homeless to, um, to tie quilts for the homeless to uh, draw little wooden coins to be able to give to somebody to brighten their day. And the whole experience is, um, is, is a way for them to feel what it feels like, to, to empower them to know that there are things that they can do to feel better, even at their lowest
0: Mm, that's so beautiful, and this is the kind of curriculum that children aren't getting. And I don't mean to demean mathematics or geography or science, but these are the life skills that actually are central to happiness and well being, um, and, and they're just not generally part of the curriculum. Um, but these are, are not, really in fact, absolutely. I-
1: Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, go ahead. When when I found out about this type of learning, I went to the curriculum director at Sandy Hook and I said, "Oh my gosh, this like this would have prevented the shooting." And uh, have Mm -hmm. you ever heard of it? And she said, "Yeah, of course." I said, "What happened?" And she said, well, uh, it was just too expensive. We had purchased a program, but we couldn't afford to train the teachers. That, by the way, is why all of my programming is no cost. So important. And then I thought, well, I'm going to create this and uh and 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 it will be to fill the gaps because this is so important obviously schools are doing it they they know this and the fact of the matter and what i learned was that less than 10% of us schools were prioritizing this and the interesting thing is there are decades of research that show when kids have these lessons, this understanding, they get better grades and test scores, higher attendance, higher graduation rates, less stress and anxiety, less emotional mental issues. And that lasts. So they've they've taken kids that have this all the way into adulthood. And these now young adults have less substance abuse, less mental illness, less incarceration, even less divorce rates. So this is really, really powerful stuff. And it's it's not hard to teach, but it does have to be prioritized. And, and here's the thing I think that's going on with schools. I mean, um, I think that what we don't understand about all of this is that it is a practice that we do for the rest of our lives. It's not just really learning this lesson and then, uh, you know, taking a program off a shelf and teaching it and then putting it back on the shelf and doing the math or the reading or the writing. It's literally something that has to be infused in everything that you do all day long. It is a practice that you do for the rest of your life. And, and yes, it takes effort, but the payoffs are long lasting and they are. They they result in flourishing. They they result in being hmm. the best you.
0: And all of this kind of curriculum falls under the aegis of social emotional learning. Is that right?
1: Well, it's interesting because there is uh, there are programs that are called social and emotional learning. Um, there are positive psychology programs. There are character education programs. There are mindfulness programs. And I took really the best of the best of these ideologies and I put them into one program. And I included... Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, all on a base of being trauma-informed because our kids have so much trauma, as well as post-traumatic growth, teaching the awareness that there is this thing called post-traumatic growth that really, when we go through difficulty in our lives, it literally is an opportunity to learn from, grow through, and be strengthened by Whatever difficulty is, it is an opportunity for growth. And then uh, and then to take that one step further to be able to take what we've learned that wisdom and use it to help other people. So this is uh, everything in in one program and it is no cost because I know that this would have saved my son's life and I know that it can reduce and prevent so much of the suffering that we're experiencing in our world. And that includes, by the way, a lot of the substance abuse and mental illness that we're seeing as well. A lot of that can be reduced and prevented by having these essential life skills.
0: Yeah, and I want to just pull on a thread um, that that you brought up briefly, where you said that forgiveness can also improve your immune system, because there are physiological benefits to uh, courage, gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, as well as psychological, mental, and spiritual ones. Where, and this I, I think is poignant and prescient for today, because the world is experiencing tremendous amount of fear. Mm -hmm. And our children are incredibly susceptible to fear. And there are certain negative emotions like fear and like rage and anger that are centered in a particular part of our brain that is known as the amygdala Mm -hmm. that is concomitant with certain neurotransmitters like cortisol and adrenaline and epinephrine that were very, very useful when we were living on the Serengeti um, and might be attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, but not as useful uh, when we're trying to work cooperatively with other people. And if you are, uh, if your physiology is constantly in a state of what is called the sympathetic nervous system, where it is in chronic cortisol infusion. Mm -hmm. You are going to have chronic anxiety. You are going to have inflammation in your body. You're going to have dysbiosis in your gut. But you're also going to not be able to properly rationalize and reason around uh, certain kinds of issues. And so the practice of uh, compassion and forgiveness can actually pull us back into our prefrontal cortex where we can actually uh, refine discernment and our ability to reason. And I think that that is incredibly important in this era of fear. And... Um, you know obviously we live in a particular moment that is awash with conspiracy theory and um and I support healthy skepticism but of course you know some of these conspiracy theories i'm sure that you've experienced firsthand um, most notably, like Alex Jones, who's an alt right commentator who claimed that Sandy Hook was a false flag event for years. And thankfully, he's been found guilty uh, of defamation recently. But it brings up a couple of questions that I would have for you is like, how were you actually able to cope, um, with your loss while also dealing with people that lacked discernment and were claiming that Sandy Hook? was a hoax and i guess i would say as a follow-on to that in this world that is awash with uh fallacious claims and conspiracy theories do you have any advice for people about how to actually stay grounded and delineate fact from fiction
1: that's a really great question um yeah from day one we had Those who were saying that Sandy Hook was a hoax um, from day one, and that was Alex Jones. And then he is funding and promoting other people, um, literally, that were having contact with us, um, accusing us of being CIA agents and actors and uh, wanting to take people's guns away. and. it was uh, scary, honestly, um, because you're you're you are at your weakest point <laughs> and, uh, you know, having gone through such a tremendous loss. And then you have this onslaught of people accusing you of heinous things uh, unjustly and uh, to the point where it's just not even it doesn't even make sense. Um, and I. I, I I am also a fan of healthy skepticism, but we, you know, you we we have to we have to accept the truth that uh, that things like this are happening and uh, and and you know, I, I feel like Alex Jones,, um, when he denies, uh, and, and by the way, there was a survey in 2018 that I think said that almost a quarter of Americans doubt the fact that Sandy Hook happened, which is just incredibly um, disappointing to me, because here's the problem. If we don't acknowledge the truth, then we can't fix the problem. So. You know, in, in my mm-hmm. world, you're either a part of the solution or you're a part of the problem. And with Alex Jones, you know, mm-hmm. continuing and to this day, he continues to say that uh, that it didn't happen. He is um, uh, actually actually. Um, Part of the problem, part of the you know continuing the fact that our kids aren't safe, he he is perpetuating that problem, um, and that's um, really disgusting to me. I think that it's important to question things, to think for ourselves. Unfortunately. All of the time that we spend on our screens lowers our ability to critically think. And I think that that is a big problem. Um, for the first time ever, we have in global information 24-7 being pushed to us. We're designed to go out and forage for information. Now we have it at our fingertips. And, uh, and I think that um, we have to really, really be (laughs) self-aware. That's The the self-awareness is a social Mm -hmm. and emotional skill. And it's probably the most important one because you really have to know yourself. You have to understand um, where your limits and boundaries are and what your truth is and, and what the truth is and stick with that and not be led by fear. I think that that is probably... Um, the biggest issue here is that there are people that are so fearful, and they don't want to believe, perhaps they do not have the capacity to accept that 26 people could be massacred in an elementary school in America. It does sound just... it, It sounds impossible doesn't it but yet it's happened over 350 times since sandy hook so unless we face the truth face reality that takes courage it really does for me too. (laughs) face reality
0: Mm.
1: and accept it and then and then further Take responsibility for what's going on in our world, and and be part of the solution. Do something. Don't just acknowledge it. Do something. Even if it's something small, it doesn't matter. Everything that everyone does works towards a solution and changes the energy. And uh, so, if if you know that is that is something that we need to do is is really work on our own courage to face this fear mongering that is going around because, um, you know, you can be led by fear. And when you are, you are not making your own decisions. You are not critically thinking for yourself. You're not being your authentic self. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, the first thing that your listeners can do is really just sit with yourself and think about what you're thinking about and, and list your fears on a piece of paper and see which ones are even real. Because we know the majority of what we fear every day doesn't happen. Yes, there's this huge fear of, of, I guess, ultimately death. Yet, uh, there's a great quote, what we uh fear uh what what is it what we fear yesterday uh what we fear today was what we feared yesterday which is what we'll fear tomorrow in other words um really take stock of your fears and then work to increase your courage so that you can face them and not be led by them
0: Mm. yeah that's great advice um I wonder where you are in terms of your journey of post-traumatic growth right now in your life.
1: I have grown so incredibly much over the last nine years. Um, In fact, when people say, even during the pandemic, I just wish we could get back to normal. (laughs) You know, I think uh, (laughs) think we don't want to go back to normal. We want to learn from this and grow through this. We want to be better off because of this. And that is a possibility, but it does mean that we have to find courage in order to face it and move through it. Um, In my own journey, I am voracious in my learning. I am constantly reading. And I mean, now more than ever, there are podcasts like yours and uh, videos available online. You can purchase a book and have it delivered to your door the next day. Um, I am constantly learning and growing. And I believe that's why we're here on earth. I, I, I do not want to have regrets in my life. And I can tell you that living in the present moment, being present with the ones that you love, not on this, but literally being present and interacting with the ones that you love, um, facing your fear, because everyone has fears, and, and growing through them, learning from them, your fears and your pain will take you to the next level, will help you continue to grow. And I believe that's why we're here.
0: Mm, That's beautiful, Scarlett. I I think your four pillars of the Choose Love movement really say it all. And uh, I've been very drawn to a Hellenistic philosophy recently known as Stoicism. And they also have four pillars which are somewhat similar their um, courage, moderation, or self-control and justice and wisdom. And all of those virtues are very, very interconnected. So it's like when you have the courage to merge moderation and justice, that begets wisdom. And that's a bit of an aphorism, I know, but, but when you were talking about all of those pillars and how one is almost necessary for the other, mm-hmm. um, This is really what scaffolds a full and flourishing life. And when I think about courage, you know, Brene Brown obviously speaks incredibly eloquently about it, but courage has almost become synonymous with vulnerability. But also, what am I willing to sacrifice for the greater good? And that courage isn't necessarily reckless. It's not just running into the front lines. It's often portrayed as uh, kind of on the battlefield, but, but courage actually marries a certain amount of discernment and wisdom and finds that balance between fear and recklessness. Mm -hmm. And then I think about gratitude And this one for me, when you were talking, I was trying to feel what landed. And um, (laughs) I'll just summarize it this way. Gratitude for me is loving what I already have. Mm. And I think for a lot of us, um, there is another famous quote. Comparison is the thief of happiness, right? So that we think of happiness as something that's always out there that we're chasing. And then as soon as we achieve or obtain that particular thing or that award or that ego adulation, there's a new shiny bright object on the horizon that we're immediately already chasing. And this is what is known as the hedonic treadmill. Mm -hmm. And we're never grateful for what we actually have right here Mm -hmm. until sometimes we lose it. And so there is a stoic practice about um, thinking about losing something that you treasure and then waking up to the fact that you already have it mm-hmm. and uh, and that can Beautiful. bring you into a state of gratitude. It's really lovely. Uh, it sounds morose <laughs> at, at the beginning, but it's lovely. And then, um, you know, forgiveness, obviously we've mined that considerably. But the lesson for me is that it just doesn't forsake justice and accountability. When you said that, how oh, that really landed, it was like you can forgive and still hold accountable. And that was, uh, I think the, the lodestone moment for me <laughs> when you said that. Uh, and then compassion, this, the, the agency that compassion has that separates it from empathy on some level. And they're both can be wonderful traits and virtues. But empathy, you can don the emotional clothing of someone else, but that could have a positive valence or a negative valence. But there's no agency required. But compassion is this bringing of loving kindness to the presence of suffering in a way that actively Alleviates it. And so there's so much agency in that. And that agency turns around on yourself. And so those were the lessons I took from listening to you speak so, so beautifully about it. And the fact that you woven those up into this tapestry of choose love is, uh, it feels like exactly what we need um, always. But right now, and uh, boy, am, am I grateful that you're bringing those teachings to the world.
1: Oh, thank you, Jeff. And, and, you know, that is a really important distinction between empathy and compassion. I'm reading a lot of articles that talk about compassion burnout in the healthcare system and in education. Mm-hmm. And in reality, there is no such thing as compassion burnout when you really truly understand the definition of compassion, but there is empathy burnout, because empathy lights up the same receptors in your brain as physical pain. So you can have empathy burnout, but I think it's such an important distinction to understand that when you practice compassion, compassion is the identification of a need and then the action, the action to help solve that need or to alleviate the suffering that actually strengthens you. It actually gives you energy. So I think that that's such an important awareness for people to know, especially those that are out on the front lines dealing with this um, coronavirus every single day, that the, the more you, you give, and we've talked about this before, um, the more you can receive.
0: Yeah, and not enough attention, I think, gets spent uh, in gratitude for a lot of those folks right now. I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of reason to be frustrated and there's a lot of, uh, you know, miscommunication that's going on, but still, I try to remind myself every day of the folks that have really given the most. and the folks, uh, all the healthcare workers and nurses and people in the ICU that have been really just putting it all on the line for almost two years. It's just, we owe them such a great debt. It's and, incredible. Um,
1: there are modern day superheroes that though, those people, as well as our educators that continue to show up in, in however oh, they can yeah. and do the best that they can. Definitely modern day superheroes.
0: Yeah. And, and just like grief, there was no training for this. I, I look at my kids, teachers. They didn't have training for a pandemic. And, you know, some of them have resources and some of them don't, but they're literally improvising on the spot, trying to hold this responsibility. And you're absolutely right. They are superheroes. So if we can have a moment of gratitude for all of our superheroes today that would be a, a great service and um and thank you you know i i really hope to be able to to break bread with you in uh, in person sometime
1: oh, um, i look forward to maybe that maybe in
0: the war- in the warmer months of connecticut i, I love the summers there <laughs> more Absolutely. than the winters uh, but um but thank you you know you're just uh, you're such an inspiration and, uh, and you're such an evolved human. So uh, you provide a model, an exemplary model. So hopefully we can walk in your footsteps.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. Well, I mean, I've, I've just grown out of tragedy and grief and, uh, you know, learned and maintained an open heart and an open mind. And I think that that is key. And, uh, and I want to thank you for putting this out there and uh, and for the time today. Appreciate you.
0: Nice. Yeah, where can we find you in your work um, on the internet or elsewhere?
1: Yeah, so we have a website, chooselovemovement.org. And all of our programming for schools, homes, and communities is no cost and can be found there. So you go on and register and you can have access to everything that we have. Um, and we have a lot of additional materials on tapping. We are partnered with the tapping solution as well as uh, trauma in school and, and with kids and at home and uh and uh, grief, we have a we have a whole program on grief that we did with the in partnership with the Elizabeth Kubler Ross Foundation. Um, we have a book club. We have our own podcast. So I just definitely encourage everyone to explore and utilize everything that you can on there.
0: Beautiful. Okay, Scarlett Lewis. To be continued. I hope you come back again.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Scarlett Lewis. To learn more about the Choose Love Movement, please go to chooselovemovement.org. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where the first 15 minutes are ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you.